Recorded. Recorded. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Give me an extra. I'll give you 80. I think we're recording now. Yes. You are. How do you know? You've got to record signal. You see the little top left? Where the red says R is, R E C. These youngsters, they know everything about computers. All right, I can show you land. Are you a doctor? Yeah. I got really bad arthritis. Okay. So I don't know how to do this anymore. Like, should I be standing? Should I be sitting? Uh, you should probably be sitting. Oh really? Yeah. Then, uh, okay. Then the then the then the ankles begin to hop up because of the arthritis. Hop band and that's the Pardon? Hot band. Oh yeah, that'd be. Or really, or really good anti-inflammatory. Like Motrin. No, it's actually a better one because there's one called Fluvaprofen, which is really good. Works really well. Fluvaprofen. Maybe you can tell me. Yeah, I can, I'll actually, if you want, I'll write your script if you want it. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's something my own doctor would be reluctant to give me a script. No, oh, you can take Motrin. You can take this. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. All right. Yeah. So I. I keep thinking because the orthopedist said keep keep walking. Yeah. You know, except I'm not walking, I'm standing. Right. Which yeah. is worse. Which is worse. Yeah. worse than sitting. Yeah. That explains a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that explains like why last Monday, oh my God, <laughs> I was a mess. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was better to sit than to stand. All right. Yeah. So I'll do a little bit of both. Okay. They also right. make the uh, Dr. Scholl's inserts. Oh, I got orthotics, six hundred dollar orthotics. I just I just got them. So see if that helps. Anyway, all right. Enough of that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Our Lady's Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Andrew, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay. <coughs> I understand a little for now. Um, our first first thing I have to do is attendance. Okay, so first we take the in-person attendance. So Dan Condon. Yes. Okay. And Daniel Cornell. Present. Okay. Douglas Fitzmorris. Here. Okay. Lucas Garcia. Here. Robert Levy. 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 Stephen Morganti. Okay. Stephen Nyer. Um, what is, is Nair is correct? No, it's Nair. No, no, you're right. Nair. Nair. Anthony Reno. Okay. Paul, oh, it's recent. It's not Rison, right? Yeah, that's that's the one. Paul okay. well, recent. And Rafael Tavares. Process of elimination. Okay. All right. So we're okay. Okay with this class. We've got everybody. Okay. All right. No. What am I missing? John Williams. No, in person. In person. Your separate okay. category. 
Okay. Oh. So we got the in-person. Okay, that's one. Okay. Yeah, that's how they that's how they construct the course. It's uh, it's two courses. One is in-person and the other is uh, Zoom. So now the next group is um, Zoom. Okay. They didn't do it. Darn. I only got two of you on here. Yeah. Okay. Christopher Greer. Yep. Okay. And James Meehan. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I'm in the bottom right, Father, George Kane. Yeah, I, I, I know, but you're not on my list. Yeah, I, I said it. We took care of the in-person, right? We have, do we have a problem with you guys last week? Some guys were yeah. here. We're not, so you're all listed, but uh, she didn't make the correction. And the registrar's office, they didn't make the correction for, uh, um, for the Zoom class. I'm sorry. So um, um, tr I'll try again. But anyway, so the ones I didn't get, so George Kane. And who else did I get? Jackie? Jackie. Du, how do you pronounce your last name? Dupiton. Dupiton. Say again. Who else? Uh, Rock? The sons? Rock? You're on mute, Rock. Rock, you're, there you go, Rock. Yes, I'm, what is it? Is it the sons? Desens. Desens. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. And Vincent Pia, right? Yes. Okay. Good. All right. All right. I'll I'll try to get you to make sure you guys are on the on the uh, on the list for next uh, next week. Okay. All right. Good. Now, um, you have to bear with me a little bit because there's a bit of an overlap um, in the beginning of the two courses that I'm teaching. Um, I have similar but not identical intro introductory material. Did we get as far as Gratian? Had I mentioned Gratian? No. Had I started the history at all? No. I hadn't started the history at all. Okay. So let me go back. Um, I think I was... I was near the end of the introduction, as I recall. I, I was, um, I had, I had um, just mentioned briefly the different types of law, right? right. right. Correct. Definitions, exhortations, rules, regulations, directions, instructions, penalties, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Had all that. Um, and I spoke a little bit about the, um, the difference between the code of canon law and truth law in general and scripture, right? Did I speak about that at all? Right? Okay, so one is the word of God, you know, that, um, but that, that what leads up to the writing down of the word of God, which is the word of God, is the experience of God's people uh, with God acting in their midst. And all of that is what kind of the continuous process. And that leads to the, the authoritative word of God. Something similar is going on with, um, uh, with, with church law in the sense that the, um, the Holy Spirit is leading the church, right? We saw that in the Acts of the Apostles. That, um, uh, that, that great uh, Council of Jerusalem, when they, they write this decree, and the decree says, it, it, remember I quoted this, it is, the, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. I mean, you know, this, this is, that's about as much chutzpah as you could possibly have. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit. 
really. Yeah, but the church knew, uh, and, and I hope still knows, that it is the Holy Spirit that's guiding the church. So uh, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, they, they, they were praying in the power of the Holy Spirit and were discussing things in a very human, human manner. Um, I'm sure the discussion, the discussion did get quite heated at times. Um, it's all the normal ways in which human beings interact, but it led finally to their, their realization that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church now. So that was a, a tremendous moment, and, and that continues to happen. So, so um, church law is, uh, is written normally under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit is, is uh, guiding the church and is present to the church. But uh, scripture is, uh, canon law is not the same as scripture. So you can't, um, you can't say, you know, a reading from the code of canon law according to um, St. John Paul the Great. And we'll get into why I said that. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and this is canon 835 <coughs> chapter, uh, <laughs> chapter, canon 835 um, verse three. I just opened this at random. It's about deacons, actually. Deacons have a share in the celebration of divine worship in accordance with the provisions of law. The word of the Lord. You know, it's not the same, right? Um, um, but, it, but it reflects what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. Not, any in, not, not necessarily any individual canon or any individual phrase, uh, but overall... Uh, we believe that this is how the church, the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. Um, more or less, you know, it can happen, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it could happen that, uh, you know, if you have a, a bishop or, or a pope for that matter, who's kind of fixated on one thing and kind of moves in a particular direction, uh, that is really that just that, that particular person's hang up, that could be a real problem, you know, uh, because then that's not necessarily the Holy Spirit, uh, that's just this guy using his authority, you know. So, um, so, so overall, right, we just say overall, we, uh, we believe the Holy Spirit is, is leading the church. Uh, and certainly, uh, we're going to look at how this Code of Canon Law came into being. Certainly, um, it, it, is, it becomes clear that, I mean, this was, this was produced by a saint, uh, St. John Paul Gray, basically. You know? um, so, um, we can feel pretty confident. And the 1917 code, Pope St. Pius X, you know, we'll get into that in a bit. So, um, so the Holy Spirit is leading the church in that sense uh, and is involved with law to that, uh, in, in that sense as well. But uh, I think, I might have mentioned this last time also, um, this is all kind of leading up to the fact that you should be familiar with and comfortable with the code, okay? You have the Bible that's something that you should be, that should just be your book that you hang out with and you're just very, very familiar with. Uh, the breviary, the same way, right? And the Code of Canon Law, the same way. Okay, this is, um, this is our, 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 our handbook. It's more than our handbook. You know? uh, I think I might have mentioned to you last time there was, there is a, um, a commentary on the old Code of Canon Law, the 1917 Code of Canon Law, called the Sacred Canons. Did I mention that to you last time? Uh, well, anyway, it's a commentary called the Sacred Canons. And that was uh, an understanding that, um, that some had of the, um, of the code um, you know, back in the day, back uh, the 1917 code. And, um, and 
And I, I, I heard a story of at least one priest who would uh, keep the, canon, the code of canon law by his bedside, you know, along with some other spiritual books. And every evening, he would read and meditate on, you know, two or three of the canons, you know, the sacred canons, you know. Um, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, it's the church um, uh, doing her thing, but the canons are the, aren't sacred in the same sense as uh, the, the breviary or or the um, or the mass or, or or something like that. Um, but to be familiar and comfortable with the code, that's that's the important thing, right? Um, and indeed, sometimes um, it can even be useful. It can even be useful for meditation uh, and even for spiritual reading. So that priest uh, wasn't uh, all that far off in a, in a uh, real sense. Um, sometimes uh, you'll find that um, probably all the time you're finding your life is so busy you don't know what to do next, right? Um, that's kind of. Uh, this is the kind of way I operate from moment to moment. So what do I do next? I don't know, I've got so all this stuff uh, going on. What, what am I going to do now? You know, um, And the Code of Kenwell kind of helps you to clarify things in your life. You know, um, and uh, uh, interrupt me if I told you this story before, but um, I sometimes go to these uh, afternoons of recollection um, and uh, give them for priests. And uh, this is going back a number of uh, years, and the, the priest who was giving the, the afternoon of recollection that particular day was um, uh, very insistent on the fact that the priests every day, and, and everybody every day, uh, certainly deacons as well, um, should, um, should spend some time in mental prayer. You know, um, just, you know, just quiet mental prayer. And uh, he was really pushing this. So he, um, in his talk, he was get, getting to very basic things that priests should, should be doing. And um, so he listed things. You know, so the priest has to say the breviary every day. The priest has to, uh, should uh, say mass every day. The priest uh, you know, should have devotion to Our Lady and blah, 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 all these things. And it also says in this particular canon, and as he was reading this, he looked at me, and, he, and um, it, it says the priest should spend some time uh, in mental prayer, right? So um, you, you can find in the Code of Canon Law, um, sort of guide, not sort of, real guidance for your own spiritual lives, you know, because it tells you, it tells you what is expected of clerics, and it tells you specifically what is expected of deacons. Uh, that, that's all in there. So it's useful to look at these things and, and then to, uh, and to apply them, right? So, um, and again, it's something you can, you can, um, you can meditate on. Uh, some, some of the, um, the, some of the definitions that uh, the Code of Canon Law gives of, of uh, holy orders, of the Holy Eucharist, and things like that, are, are, are wonderful little summaries of, of, of Catholic teaching, and they're, they're useful for meditation. And, um, and again, correct me if I, if, I, um, if I told you this story before. Did I tell you about the wedding that I did for Silvana Lusan de Barros, uh, who is, um, she's a judge, on the tribunal for the Archdiocese of New York. We'll get into a tribunal. You know what a tribunal is by now, right? Yeah. Um, um, she's a judge in the tribunal, and I, um, I've known her for many years. Um, she, the side story, she came from Argentina, uh, was a civil lawyer, uh, but very devout uh, woman, very devout family. Um, she wanted to work for the church, and um, anyway, uh, she ended up getting um, her licentiate canon law, 
and now she's a, uh, for many years now, she's been a judge in the tribunal. Thanks be to God, because uh, right now they're short-headed on the tribunal, and she is the most prodigious uh, worker on the tribunal next to the judicial vicar himself. She's really amazing. So um, uh, she was a real godsend. And we became friends, and, um, and she got married, and she wanted me to do the wedding. So the, uh, the wedding w uh, took place at uh, the church in um, Long Beach, Long Island. Um, anybody familiar with Long Beach? Uh, the Church of St. Ignatius the Martyr, I think his name is. St. Ignatius of Antioch, I think it's called St. Ignatius the, the Martyr. And um, uh, it was an interesting collection of people who came to this. I mean, obviously family and friends, but a whole bunch of canon lawyers came, you know? <laughs> And one of the candle lawyers said, he was there because he said, this is an historic occasion. He said, this is the first time, as far as we know, this is the first time in the history of the church that um, a judge on an ecclesiastical court has gotten married. Because uh, it's only recently that, um, uh, recently, in the past few decades now, that, that lay people uh, have, been allowed, have been permitted to function as judges on tribunals. Before that, it was always priests. So, um, Looking back now, there was another woman, um, a lay woman, um, canon lawyer, I forget where, somewhere down south, I think, who got married around the same time. So I'm not sure who got married before who, but anyway, it's considered an historic occasion, right? And there were, there were um, officials from the Archdiocese of New York were there, and uh, the Sisters of Life were there, and all these uh, distinguished people were there. So when it came time for the, um, uh, for the homily, and looked out and said, well, in the presence of such a distinguished collection of canon lawyers, officials of the archdiocese, sisters of life, I would be remiss if I did not, and I pulled out from shelf underneath the pulpit, I would be remiss if I did not read from the code of canon law. And I picked up, uh, actually, a previous edition of this, 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 uh, this same book, right? So I opened it to, uh, to canon 1055, which we will be getting into uh, in a few weeks, which is the first canon in the section on marriage. And I read it, right? The marriage covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of their whole life. And it goes on, it goes on. Right? So um, uh, it's, it's a beautiful statement, is my point. Uh, it's a beautiful statement about what marriage is. So I quoted that and then I preached about it. And that was the homily, you know? So um, this can be very useful in many ways besides just the law, uh, just learning what the law itself is, okay? Um, Anyway, so that's just a brief uh, introduction to the code, uh, to the to to law itself, um, and the whole notion of canon law. What I'd like to do now is uh, a very very brief, very sketchy romp. Uh, that's what it is uh, through the the history of canon law, and um, you know, don't freak out over this. We're not. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to require you to know these things in detail. Um, but I, I want to give you a, 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 a two things. I want to do two things. One is I want to give you a sense of um, how law comes into being. Um, and, and, and then that's number one, how it, how it works, how it continues to work. And then number two, um, just, just the, the really the top guns, you know, just a few, a few names, a few um, a few names of persons, a few names of, of, of works that's important to know if, uh, if you're a cleric. You've got to know these a few, 
uh, pretend to know anything but canon law. Okay, so this is a very, very sketchy summary of the history of canon law. You have, I presume, you have other courses in the history in church history. Right? Uh, this is not a course in church history. We're going to just skim this very briefly, but it's, it's just fascinating stuff. Um, <clears throat> so we'll um, just for um, for purposes uh, for convenience. Um, we're going to divide um, the history of canon law and therefore the history of the church into four periods. Um, I'm just taking this from a, a, a book. Um, it could be any book, but uh, this is what this particular book uh, does. So you have four periods. Um, number one is the first millennium. is the classical period, which is an amazing time. Um, from 11, uh, this particular book dates in 1140 to 1325. I'm not going to expect you to know these dates, um, but just to give you an idea. And the third is, in, in terms of church history, this is what we'll call the modern period. Modern is everything from the 14th century to the middle of the 19th century. That's modern, okay, in the, in the, in the, in the church's viewpoint, right? And that's, uh, that goes to um, the First Vatican Council, which was 1869 to 70. Okay, that's the, the um, so-called modern period. And then the, the final period is would be the contemporary period, right? So everything after the First Vatican Council. So very broad strokes here, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> starting from the beginning, we have um, we discuss the Last Supper, um, and then our Lord goes to His Passion, Death, Resurrection, Sending of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I mentioned to you that, that scene from, uh, I saw an EWTN many years ago, um, uh, that, that portrayal of Pentecost on the cheap set with the famous actors. So and Raymond Burr, you know, says, uh, Andrew, you're going to Greece, and Thomas, you're going to India, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes and they get organized, right? And you think about, just from a natural point of view, how human uh, society operates. That's, that's what happens, right? People want to do something. Well, we got to get organized, okay? Um, you know, we want to have a class in canon law. What are we going to do? Well, we got to get somebody who knows something about canon law. Uh, we, we we should find a place to meet. We should set a time. You know, so we have right away we start setting up rules, right? Uh, that's that's the way it operates, right? That's how human beings accomplish anything, right? So um, when you think about the uh, just in, intuiting, even if you didn't know anything about church history, the um, the early church. So here we are, the Lord has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come, and do this in memory of me. Okay, let's get to work. So, well, what does it mean to do this in memory of me? Well, we need bread and we need wine. We need a place to meet. Uh, how about if we meet at Joe's house? Um, and, uh, you know, 
every every Sunday. They started doing that right away, apparently, on Lord's Day, right? And um, good idea to read from Scripture, which was then was just the Old Testament. Um, you know, not everybody can join us. And what about the poor? Let's take up a collection for the poor. You know, well, was, so all of, you, know, you see what, I, what I'm getting at. Uh, people were um, were, were uh, kind of feeling their way under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So you have people celebrating the the, uh, the Holy Eucharist, right, um, in houses, and then um, and then uh, people would talk to each other. Obviously, what are they doing in your house? Oh, that's good. Good idea. We'll try that. You know, how about this? You want to try this, and so forth. And then you have uh, for a whole city, you would have a bishop, right, who would uh, supervise the whole thing, right? And customs, uh, customs came up right away. Custom is one of the most important sources of law. Custom comes up right away. Uh, how people are doing things. Right, um, and they share with one another what their customs are. Uh, problems come up, you know. Well, you know, we have um, we we have 20 people who want to get together for the whole Eucharist, but but you know, my my little house can't hold more than about a dozen, you know. So the guy in charge says, "All right, we're I'm going to make a decision. We're going to start another another community somewhere else, right?" So people are making decisions, you know. Um, should should we meet um, should we meet on a, a, a Thursday evening or a, or, a, or a Tuesday evening? You know, well half the people want it, want it on Thursday, half want it on Tuesday. Somebody's got to decide, so the guy in charge decides, right? So so you have to make decisions, right? So these are the two sources of law, right? The uh, custom and uh, and then the the decisions of those uh, of those in authority. So um, and of course. Um, you know, those are the basic sources of law. Um, custom, decisions of those in authority. Later on, the teachings of, of the jurists, canon lawyers. That, that comes later. So the first millennium. Right? Um, <clears throat> so the, the um, the first Christian communities, they take, where are they, where are they going to get their rules from? Uh, for social life um, and for other things. Well, scripture is already uh, beginning to get written down. Paul, you'll see Paul is making all sorts of decisions uh, for uh, the communities that uh, he had an influence on. Right? Um, so you have the teachings of the apostles, decisions by the apostles. And Paul, uh, you, you'll recall from some of his letters, he um, he makes all these decisions. He, make, he gives people instructions. For instance, uh, on keeping certain errors in check, how to celebrate the Eucharist. You know, he's worried that people, that things are getting out of hand, that people show up drunk for the Holy Eucharist and that kind of thing. Um, he has rules about conditions of life uh, for various people, bishops, uh, um, priests, deacons, virgins, married persons, widows. Uh, he mentions the obligation to earn a living through work. Um, so all of that you find in the New Testament. Right? And, and, uh, and they took rules from the Old Testament as well that they applied. Right? So scripture is one source. And then the bishops also, as I mentioned, would issue norms and decisions for their communities. Right? So you have, um, you have scripture, decisions of the apostles, teachings of the apostles, uh, decisions by bishops, um, and, especially, and in particular way, customs and particular traditions. Then you have the, um, you, you begin to see written canon law at a very early stage. Um, 
the, the beginnings of canon law. Right? Um, so you have the Apostolic Fathers, and I'm not going to get into this now because you get this in other courses, but the Apostolic Fathers, that's the first generation of Christian authors after the Apostles, the Apostolic Fathers, right? They um, had instructions in there, they, uh, the beginnings of canon law. Then the Fathers of the Church, after the Apostolic Fathers, then the Fathers of the Church uh, will go from the second to the eighth centuries, right? Um, so you have all of these different sources of, of, of law. And as these things are being written down, you begin to notice profound differences uh, in laws from different parts of, of the world, right? So um, especially the East and the West. It's the same Roman Empire, but vastly different cultures, right? In the East, you have, um, uh, it's just very different uh, from, from the West. And you see that reflected to this day in, um, uh, in the spirituality and the liturgy of uh, the Eastern Rite, uh, all the different Eastern Rites versus the, the Roman Rite, right? Um, and <clears throat> besides that, you have, um, as, as the church came, especially as the church came out of the catacombs, so you have the, you know, I'm sure you know by now, the Edict of, Edict of, of Milan, Constantine legalizing the church. Well, the church comes out of the catacombs, and now uh, they can operate freely in society. So they start building churches. That's why um, the, the, those magnificent basilicas in Rome, uh, the most ancient ones typically date from the fourth century, right? because that's when the church was able to build these things. You know? um, and the, the Roman basilicas, that, that, that structure, that was, um, the kind of uh, design that they had in uh, imperial buildings in Rome, you know, for important matters. They would have that kind of a structure. So the church was simply copying what was there. Uh, the church took over uh, various Jewish institutions. You see that reflected especially in the liturgy. Uh, and most important for our purposes, the church took over um, and really followed very closely the whole system of Roman law of Roman law. So canon law, as we have it, is based very, very heavily on Roman law, okay? Um, I mean, it, it comes from the, the practices of, of the uh, early Christians, but the, the, the structure of it, uh, it comes from Roman law. Um, so then um, you have uh, these different communities making rules for themselves. Well, this wasn't going to work too well um, going into the future. So every once in a while, the bishops of these different communities would get together um, to kind of systematize things and, and kind of unify things. And, um, and, and these, these gatherings of the bishops, of course, were called councils, right? And uh, in the councils, the bishops would, uh, would fix common rules or canons. Right? So canon um, is simply a rule, right? So the bishops would fix these common rules that would, that would um, come from all of the, the different local communities, and they would sit down and kind of hash it out and decide, okay, this is what everybody should be doing, just to have a certain unity there, right? Um, 
And you would have this phenomenon where you would have um, uh, a regional synod you know, in one area. Um, th this is a hot topic now, right? Uh, the, uh, there's going to be a synod on synodality you know, in Rome. You know, so synod, 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 you know, meetings and, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm not a big fan of meetings, but um, whatever. Uh, so, but you had these synods, these, these meetings, these, these councils in different regions, right? So, um, and um, the regions uh, would then compare notes. And um, when they would do that in, um, in the council, the different regions would compare notes. Um, uh, <clears throat> sometimes, and they would agree, and if that was, if that, uh, if that agreement was something that was accepted by uh, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, then presto, change hope, that council becomes an ecumenical council because it's now for the whole church. Right? So you have, so it starts in a little house church, then little house churches all gathering together in a city, then the bishop of that city gets together with the bishop of other cities and in a regional synod or council, they make decisions. Uh, similar things happen in other areas, then, then people, representatives from these different areas compare notes, and uh, and if the Holy Father approves of all of that, 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 that all becomes an ecumenical council, okay? Um, so that's how these things work. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, the, um, the, the Bishop of Rome, the, the Roman Pontiffs, as time goes on, were um, getting more and more influential. So this is, as we're going into uh, later uh, in antiquity and into the Middle Ages, the popes become much more important as sources of canon law. And they would act in two ways. Uh, they would act on their own initiative, uh, just, in, just on their own initiative, they would issue laws, or um, they would issue responses to, to questions. So um, when a, a bishop acts on his own, uh, when, a, when the pope acts on his own, uh, without anybody particularly asking for, uh, for a response on something, but he, he wants to address an issue, he will issue a decree in this manner. He will issue a decree Motu proprio. Uh, on, of his own volition, on his own initiative. Uh, a motu proprio. Has anyone heard of a, a decree issued motu proprio recently by the Holy Father? Right. Yeah. What is it? Um, custodes traditiones. Traditiones right. custodes. Whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's um, that was issued motu proprio. The Pope did it on his own. No one was asking him to do it, and a lot of people were asking that he not do it. But that's something else. But he issued it on his own, motu proprio, right? His own initiative, right? Uh, it was his response to an earlier motu proprio issued by Pope Benedict the, uh, the, the 16th uh, called Summorum Pontificum on the same topic, right? So <coughs> motu proprio. So this is an ancient practice of the Pope. So the Pope would take, would act in their own initiative. Um, that's one uh, way in which the Popes exercise their influence. The other way in which they exercise their influence typically was um, uh, addressing Issues in particular uh, in various Christian communities by means of what were called decretal letters. 
this is something that becomes very important in later antiquity and in the Middle Ages. Decretal, okay, the, the, that word decretal uh, basically means decree, decree-like, right? Um, so decretal letters of the Pope became very, very important uh, in the Middle Ages. And, um, and so they start, started collecting these things. This is, this is going on more and more uh, as, as, the, as the church moves through history. Where, uh, she's collecting all of these canons. She's collecting all of these uh, she, jurists, uh, you know, people who are interested in these things, are collecting uh, different canons that are written. They're collecting the motu proprios. They're collecting, they're collecting these decretal letters. Um, and um, so they, have, they, they then had all of these collections of decretal letters. And, um, and this, this really led to the, uh, uh, to the academic um, profession of canon law because uh, can candidates started studying all of these different decretal letters and trying to reconcile them because a lot of these were at odds with each other. They, they said opposite things. You know? um, so they had to try to figure out, um, uh, they had to make some kind of order out of this. right? So um, all this is because the, the um, things are, sent, are getting more and more centered on the, the power and the influence of the Pope. All right, so that's, that's the first thousand years. How did I do? How, did, how long did it take me to get to the first thousand years? About, about 15 minutes, something like that. So um, uh, <coughs> moving right along uh, into, the, um, into the classical period, uh, now you have all of these collections of things, uh, of, as I said, of canons, of decretals, motu proprios, this, that, and the other thing, right? Um, and there are many different collections, and they don't all say the same thing. Somebody's got to figure out what the law of the church really is, because otherwise uh, people are following all these different laws. So, uh, in the year 1140, Father of Canon Law, 1140, this great figure named Gratianus, or Gratian. In English, it's Gratian, in uh, Latin, it's Gratianus. In 1140, he was a great um, scholar of Canon Law uh, in Bologna. And this is also the time when the universities are starting up, right? So he's, he's in Bologna. Uh, it's called the Master of Bologna, and he and he takes all this stuff. I mean, what a, this is quite a work. He takes all this stuff. It's vast uh, collections of things, and he tries to make sense out of it. And he issues what is called um, he, he publishes what is called the Decretum Gratiani.
or abrasion, right, in English. And the, um, And the title of this is illustrative of what he was trying to do. The title of this <clears throat> in Latin is called Concordia Discordantium the concordance of discordant canons, right? The harmony of unharmonious canons, right? A concordance, in other words, right? But it, it is um, the the harmony, if you will, of of discordant or the con the, the concord of discordant canons. Right, so he's taking canons that are saying different things that are not always in agreement, and he's, he's making a system out of it. So he's, bring, uh, he's bringing them in, into harmony, okay? That was the title that he gave um, to his decree, Gratian's Decree, Decreto um in about 1140, right? Um, this was... Um, now, it was just his private scholarly. Can you guys see me? You can't see me now, right? Or can you? You can still see me. You just couldn't see the board. OK. All right. Um, can, can you see me now? <laughs> um, so um, it was just a private scholarly work, right? Um, it, it, was, it was published for, for other scholarly type people, whoever might be interested. But there was such a need for this that immediately it became the source of law. That was it. Everybody said, oh, finally, somebody figured this out. OK, we're going to use that, you know? Um, just the nature of things. It's similar to what you have on, in front of you, um, your own commentary on the Code of Canon Law. Uh, whichever one you have, the, um, the green one and the red one, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, neither one of these is the authoritative Code of Canon Law, except the canons that are quoted in it, right? So. Um, the, all the commentary in here is nothing official from the church. It's just opinion of, uh, opinions of uh, scholars from the Canon Law Society of America, uh, in, this, in this case, the opinion of Opus Dei scholars and others. It's their scholarly opinions. But there's such a need for all of this that um, people rely heavily on, on both of these and on other commentaries, right? So it was similar with what Gratian did. Um, <clears throat> The concordance of discordant canons. Finally, they had something they could uh, they could consult that gave them direction, uh, and there was a, a tremendous need for that. Um, so that that was um, that was the beginning of this great uh, process of systematizing canon law in the um, in the <clears throat> in the Middle Ages. Can can you guys see the board on the other side? 
Can I write on that one? Okay. Yes, yes. All right. So that's called, well, let me write this here, though. Um, this is the beginning um, of what's called the corpus juris canonici. sheet. This is the beginning, all right? The Decretum Graziani, um, ju just to uh, jump ahead, the Corpus Juris Canonici became the source of canon law, uh, beginning with Gratian in the 12th century and continuing all the way up to the 20th century, um, to the, um, uh, the 1917 Code of Canon Law. This became the basic source of law and the foundation stone of the Corpus Juris Canonici is the, the Credum Graziani. So what does Corpus Juris Canonici mean? Corpus. Body, body, body of, of law, canon law. Body of canon law, right? Body of canon law, right? Corpus Juris Canonici, body of canon law. It's, um, it's different, Corpus Juris Canonici, C-I-C, for uh, abbreviated. It's very different from the Codex. Codex Juris Canonici, all right? These are not the same thing. The Corpus Juris Canonici is the source of canon law that was produced uh, beginning in the 12th century and used until the 20th century. Uh, the body of canon law, the Corpus Juris Canonici. In the 20th century, in 1917, we came out with the first Codex, Codex Juris Canonici, Code of Canon Law, okay? So the same initials, but different, uh, different titles, right? So you have the Corpus Juris Canonici uh, that operated for several centuries, and now uh, today we have the Codex Juris Canonici, the Code of Canon Law. Very different, all right? Um, the, so the body of canon law, you'll see, um, if you ever get a chance, I wish I had time to, um, I'm doing this with the seminarians, but I don't have time with you guys. Uh, I wish I had time to take you over to the um, uh, rare book room at the, um, uh, in, in the library. And if you get a chance, uh, if you have some time, go over there um, and, and, and ask for uh, Jim Monty. Have you all met Jim Monty? Yeah, he's, he's a wonderful guy. And tell him Father Elder sent you. You'd like to take a look at the Corpus Juris Canonici by Gratian. And he has uh, some, uh, some copies uh, of this from, from the Middle Ages, you know. Um, and, um, and you'll see when you look at it, it's humongous. It's humongous, you know? I mean, what have we got now, right? Well, the, the Corpus Juris Canonici is, is several volumes. And what I'm gonna do is, is go, go through briefly um, how that was put together. So the, uh, the Corpus Juris Canonici uh, is, is this one vast collection of books. <clears throat> and the first book is the one we've just been discussing, the Decretum Graziani, the Decree of Gratian, right? Um, and that was great. Um, so finally, they had a, a book they could use, you know? Um, however, that was 1140. 1141, new questions came up. 
1142, 1143, you know, new questions come up, come up, new decrees, decretals, decretal letters are issued, new, uh, new motu proprios, uh, all the rest, uh, because life goes on and questions have to be settled and new laws come into being. So uh, these laws, of course, were written down and they had to be collected. And um, the, the great effect of the, um, of the Great Vibrazioni, uh, beginning of the Corpus Juris Canonici, is that um, this became, for all intents and purposes, settled, settled law. This is what everybody was using at, from that point on. Anything else uh, would be something new. They wouldn't go back and look at old laws anymore, by and large, right? Uh, they basically just use the Cradle Brazziani. So any other laws would be new laws. So anything that came into being after this was called the Yosnova, which is the new law, right? I don't even see that. The, um, the Yosnova, the new, the new law. So you have these new laws, <clears throat> and they all begin to get added to the Corpus Juris Canonici. That's the important point, right? Um, the first book of the Corpus Juris Canonici is the Decretum Graziani, but now we start adding to this book. So the second book of the, uh, Decretum, uh, of the uh, Corpus Juris Canonici is, um, is called um, the, the Decretals. How far over can you guys see? Can you see over here? Yeah. This whole board. Okay. Whole board. You see this whole board. Okay. All right. So the um, the decretals of Gregory the Nine. Just write large, please. Okay. I'm not. Decretals of Gregory the Ninth. which is also called the Liber Extra, the extra book. This was uh, published in, uh, you don't have to know these dates, I'll just give you this information. This is um, <clears throat> published in 1234, so about a century later. The Decretals of Gregory the Ninth were the so-called Liber Extra. Right? Um, this extra book, so you have the first book, which is the Decretum Graziani. The second book, Decretals of Gregory IX, Liber Extra, in, its, in itself consists of five books. Okay, so the five books here, right? This is vast material, but it's condensing even vaster material, right? Um, and this was done by the patron saint of canon lawyers, St. Raymond of Pennyford. St. Raymond of Pennyford, um, I don't know if there's something about studying canon law, um, 
doctor might take a note, um, but he, he, um, he was known for his longevity. He lived like 98, 99 years, something like that, maybe 100 years. Now. So, uh, so maybe, for some people, cannabis is good for your health, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, St. Raymond Pennyfort produced, this is the second book of the Corpus Juris Canonici, but in itself, it's five books, right? Um, so, um, and, then it, and then it goes on, and I'm not going to um, go, go into this in, in, in more detail. Uh, I'll, ju I'll, just, I'll just read this stuff out to you so you get a sense of, of, of how it goes. So this is 1234, so it's a century later, right? Then um, in 1317, you have the Decretales Clementinas, the Decretals of, of, of Clement. The collection was begun under Clement V uh, and completed and promulgated by uh, Pope John the 22nd in, uh, in 1317. And then you have um, more decretals after that that were called, you don't have to know this, they're called extravagantes, uh, extravagant, extra stuff, extravagantes. Um, and they have, so you have extravagantes of John the 22nd and other extravagantes as well. Um, and finally, so all, my point is, the Corpus Juris Canonici begins with that one decree, uh, that one book, Decretum Graziani, which is huge, by the way. Um, then you have the Liber Extra, uh, the Decretals of Gregory the Ninth, which is five books. So this is a massive work already, already in the 13th century. It grows and grows and grows um, until finally you have the official Roman edition of the Corpus Juris Canonici in, uh, in 1582. So look how long this is going on. Four and a half centuries. Right? And you, you finally get to the, um, the official Roman edition, right, of the of the of the Corpus Juris Canonici, right? um, and <clears throat> all of these things they were collecting canons, but at the same time they were um, they were writing all these glosses and commentaries. So this, these these were all predecessors of what you have on your desk, right? Um, if you look at these things, and I, I urge you to do it do it if you if you get a chance. Um, uh, Jim Motti will also show you if you have, if you and he have the time, um, this this huge multi-volume um, study Bible really that was probably the same edition, not the actual books, but the same edition as the one used by Thomas More. Um, and you'll find in one huge page, you know, it's a huge book, you know, uh, you'll you'll find one verse in the middle of the page, and on on either side of it. Uh, very, very small letters, and this is all still, uh, these are also manuscripts, you know, I, I think. I, I don't think they had a printing press yet. I forget what year this was printed. But in any case, you have on one side, uh, you have two different commentaries, one on each side, uh, that, that, that are, are very, very tiny print, you know. Um, and so what was being done with the Bible was being done in a similar way for um, canon law, for theology, uh, what have you. It's the way they did things, right? Um, so you have all these these glosses, commentaries, uh, univer by university professors and jurists, and so on and so forth, right? So um, this is the the beginning of the profession of canon law, really, uh, in in this uh, classical period um, that we went way, way beyond the classical period because now we're way into the modern period, right? Um, so then during um, in so we're in the modern era now, um, <clears throat> we um, 
the corpus, as I said, continued to be the, the nucleus, right? This is the central nucleus of canon law. But, um, but you know, things kept growing, you know? And this is life, you know? So there, there are these other collections of norms and commentaries and all the rest. Um, and um, one, one, one source, one big source of a lot of uh, additional laws was the Council of Trent, right? Um, and I'm sure you've studied that, or we'll study that in history, right? So Trent. All right, 1545 to 1563, the Council of Trent. Um, that it was a reforming council, so, so a lot of new uh, regulations came out of the Council of Trent. Um, then they're collecting the, uh, they continued to collect all, collect all the acts of the Roman pontiffs. Um, and then um, as the papal um, authority grew, you, he had to have offices of people to help him, right? That's the beginning of all these Vatican offices that we have today. Uh, a Vatican office is called um, a dicastery. So the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Congregation for the Doctrines of Faith, the Congregation for the Cause of the Saints, the Congregation for this, that, and the other thing, the, um, all these are called uh, dicasteries, right? And these became more and more important. And so the decisions of these various dicasteries um, be, became a source of law as well. In particular, uh, and we'll get into this later on in the course, especially in, in section on marriage, the, uh, the Roman Rota, which is one of the two major courts of the church. You have the, we'll get into this later in the course, the Roman Rota and the, uh, the Apostolic Signatura. The Apostolic Signatura is, is really the Supreme Court of the church. Uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke, some of you, um, uh, know of him. He was he was the prefect of the uh, Apostolic Signatura uh, until Pope Francis, and that was that's another story. Okay, so um, the uh, so the Roman Rota, um, and to this day, that's where uh, marriage cases most of the time are appealed. Right. So um, so and the 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 decisions of the Roman Rota uh, be, become uh, the jurisprudence that's used in tribunals. So. Uh, so the tribunal in your own diocese, the, the judges there in writing their decisions would be basing their decisions on the, um, the jurisprudence that's come out of the Roman Rota, right? So, um, so all of these things are, are sources of, of, of law, okay? Um, so you have, um, well, there are various other things as well. Um, but you can see it's it's getting out of hand again, right? You have you have all these things getting collected. So the uh, corpus juris canonici is not really sufficient anymore, and and it's getting all unwieldy. Uh, you have other sources of law as well. I won't get into them. Um, concordats, you know, uh, the agreement agreement made by uh, the Holy See in a in a particular country and so forth. Um, the um, 
we get to the first Vatican Council. This is the end of the, the modern era, right? Um, uh, the first Vatican Council is 1869 to 1870. Right. And um, that, um, that defined, as you recall, that defined the doctrine of papal infallibility um, and so that meant that, that um, the church was even more um, uh, unified around the Holy Father. You know, and it was providential because the church, what was going on in church history and world history in those days, we meant we needed to have a very strong uh, person at the helm. You know, and we've been blessed. Uh, not about right now, but but you know, as you know, the history of the popes uh, until recently was a history of very uh, strong men who were really guiding the church well. You know, um, so, um, but the First Vatican Council, 1869 to 70. Um, okay. All right, so you have all of these things being collected, and people are scratching their heads. They don't know what to do, because, you know, the question comes up, you've got all these laws. We thought we had it all together with the corpus, years cannot achieve, but now we're adding all these other laws. Life is getting so complicated. We need to figure this out. It took a saint. So we get into the contemporary period after the First Vatican Council, and it was Saint Pius X. God bless him. Well, yeah, he's a saint. Saint Pius X, in 1904, decided to develop a code for the Latin Church, a code of canon law. So this is different from the Corpus Juris Canonici, a collection of all of these. Uh, decretals, decisions, and so forth, with a lot of commentary. Now we're going to come out with a code, a code of canon law. Canon 1, canon 2, canon 3, it's all going to be crystal clear, right? We hope. Um, <clears throat> he put in charge of this, um, you got all this, right? Pietro Gaspari. Oh, can you see that? Sorry. Cardinal Pietro Gaspari. Um, he was the president of the commission that was entrusted with coming up with this code of canon law. Uh, so St. Pius X, okay, remember him, uh, the, the Pope of the Eucharist, right? St. Pius X, 1904, entrusts this project to Cardinal Gaspari. Um, he doesn't, St. Pius X doesn't live to see it promulgated. It is Benedict the XV. The, the predecessor of Benedict XVI. Benedict XV, who succeeded Pope um, Pius X, who promulgated, and here it is, now the Codex.
Eurus Canonici. In 1917, okay, and sometimes abbreviated um, because there are two editions of this. Uh, One was 1917, the other was 1980, is 1983, the one you have now. So I hope you guys can see it. Um, All right, so. We had the corpus here as canonici, now we have the codex here as canonici. That's what you have on your desk in front of you, the codex here as canonici. And it's abbreviated CIC, okay? And there are two, um, so is the corpus here as canonici for that matter, but uh, you can tell by the number of what we're talking about. So the codex here is canonici of 1917 is abbreviated CIC 17, right? Or 1917. And the one you're using, CIC 83 or 1983. So the Codex Juris Canonici started by uh, Pope St. Pius X in 1904, uh, brought to fruition by his successor, Pope Benedict XV, in 1917. It's, uh, it was a tremendous accomplishment, as you can imagine. This would be on the order of what Gratian did right, um, in the 20th century. It was an amazing accomplishment. Um, um, <clears throat> and it has the same kind of format as what you have in front of you. So instead of having these, all of these collections of commentaries, these collections of books and decretals and so forth, it just has the canons, blah, 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 blah. Thanks be to God. You know, makes my life a lot easier as a canon lawyer. You know, make your life a lot easier as a, as a deacon or a priest or, or somebody working in a parish or whatever you're going to be doing. So, um, so we can all um, thank the Lord and, and thank St. Pius X for this great gift that he gave to the church. Especially as things are getting so complicated. We're talking about the 20th century. Need I say more? We needed to have something very simple and clear, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant work. Um, so, um, <clears throat> however, life, life goes on. Right? So, this is uh, the end of World War I, and you know, <laughs> history since then. I mean, things are very, very complicated. Right? Um, uh, the world gets complicated, culture gets complicated, and all this. Um, and very quickly, this is 1917, um, 40 years later, 42 years later, Pope John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd, announces, we've got to revise it again. You know? So just, uh, just 42 years later, we're going to revise it. Uh, and so he announced the... Uh, um, he, he announced two things at the same time. He announced um, on January 25th, 1959, January 25th, 1959, he announced um, the Second Vatican Council. Right? We're gonna, there's going to be a reform of the church. At the same time, January 25th, 1959, he announced the reform of the Code of Canon Law. Why January 25th? Why that day, you know? This becomes important now in, in, the, um, in the, the immediate history of the Code of Canon Law. It's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, January 25th. Right? And we'll find out that the 1983 Code was uh, promulgated on January 25th, 1983. Okay? So January 25, 1959, 
uh, Pope St. John XXIII announces the Second Vatican Council, uh, and at the same time he announces uh, reform of the Code of Canon Law. They're not two separate things. The idea was the council was going to be a thorough reform of the whole church, and the end product of a reform of the whole church is a new Code of Canon Law, which implements the decisions of the Second Vatican Council. Right? Um, and you'll find, and we'll be calling attention to this, you'll find a lot of what we have in the Second Vatican, uh, what we have in the, the new Code of Canon Law, the 1983 Code, is taken sometimes, very often, just literally, from uh, uh, word for word, from the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Okay? So this is the last document of the Second Vatican Council. It is the implementation of the Second Vatican Council. That's what the 1983 code is. So January 25th, 1959, the announcement was, right? Um, <clears throat> then, I don't know if we want to get into what the, what the council itself did. I don't want to get into the whole history of the uh, Second Vatican Council. Uh, you're studying that in other courses, I presume, right? Um, but it, um, but it, uh, it, it, it reformed the life of the church, right? clearly. And um, a couple of highlights from the Second Vatican Council that, that are um, reflected in, in a particularly important way in the 1983 Code. Um, the, the title of the church as the people of God, right, from Lumen Gentium. Uh, the people of God. That that was um, that's a. Uh, I won't get into that in too much detail because you should be studying that in other courses. But uh, the whole notion from the Old Testament, right, that the, uh, the the church is the people of God who are just following the Lord's lead. Uh, we look at the Old Testament where literally, uh, geographically, the people of God followed the um, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, right, um, through the desert. They followed the Lord. They were the people of God. The Lord was leading them through the desert and leading them through history. So the Lord continues to lead us through history. And so we are a very much a continuation or the fulfillment, if you will, of the Old, uh, Old Testament notion of the people of God. That's central to the Second Vatican Council, the people of God. And that's um, the second book of the Code of Canon Law is entitled The People of God. Um, the, the Second Vatican Council, uh, all right, I'll just do a couple of these things and then we'll take a break. Second Vatican Council completed what the First Vatican Council had started. First Vatican Council spoke about the role of the Holy Father, right, and, and, and defined papal infallibility. Then it was, uh, it, it, had, it had to be ended because uh, the, the Italian troops were uh, attacking them, so um, they had to get out of there. Uh, so they, their work was unfinished. They, they spoke about the Pope, but they didn't get to the bishops. The Second Vatican Council completed uh, what the First Vatican Council started by uh, adding to considerations about the Pope, also uh, teachings about the bishops. So the whole emphasis on uh, the, the, uh, the um, importance of the bishop in his diocese as the one who is the vicar of Christ in his diocese, um, as the one who is head of the diocese, and who um, collegially works with the other bishops and the Holy Father to, uh, to govern the church, okay? Um, the, um, and other things as well that we'll get into, certainly the role, um, the role of um, the laity in the church is very, very important in the Second Vatican Council, right? 
and, and therefore in the Code of Canon Law. We'll see even the way that uh, Book Two of the Code of Canon Law is, is, um, is organized. The laity come first, and clerics come last. Right? That in itself is saying something, right? The heart of Book Two and of, this, of the Code of Canon Law, and really the, 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 the heart of Canon Law itself, and the heart of the Second Vatican Council is the universal call to holiness. And we'll get into this uh, when we get into Book Two. The universal call to holiness. That's what this is all about. Everybody's called to be a saint. Um, and in, in constructing Book Two, in particular the way it does, the, the code emphasizes that. It's not a matter of the super holy ones, you know, the pope and the bishops and the priests and the deacons and the um, religious and all that. They're the holy ones, and then you have the lowly lay people. Right? No, um, that, that might have been the, the ethos in which some of us grew up, but it's, uh, the Second Vatican Council has gotten back to our biblical roots. No, we are, there's this radical equality of all believers. We're all called to different uh, tasks within the church, but we are all called to holiness. We're all called to be saints, right? And that's, the, that's, that's the Second Vatican Council. That's why the Second Vatican Council came into existence. And that's what the Code of Canon Law is about as well. We're all called to be saints. On that note, uh, saints in the making, we can have a cup of coffee. <laughs> okay, so 15 minutes? Okay.